Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery, and I'm excited to have Alison Bongates, who's the general partner at uh, early stage VC fund called Simperverance. Um, Alison invests in technology transforming work, health, and financial wellness. Before joining Simperverance, Alison worked on the trading floor at Goldman Sachs. She was an early employee at General Assembly and she co-founder of Fresco Capital, which is a global seed fund. Uh, and she's uh, uh, she's an author of the new book, Breaking Adventure. Uh, welcome to the show, Alison. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, so you know, you, you have an interesting journey. Uh, you've been an operator and then you became a VC. Um, how did you get in, into this world of uh, venture capital? I like to share my story because I couldn't break into venture capital. I had to start one in order to get into the industry. And um, that was really my journey. I was an operator at General Assembly. We had VCs that had backed our business. I learned a little bit about how they operated, but had a lot of questions about the truth of venture capitalists and what incentivizes them. And when I was running education programs at General Assembly in Hong Kong, I ran classes for entrepreneurs on how to get funding, specifically how to get angel investment in the early days of their business. And this was by far the most popular class that we were running. And in fact, intro to angel investing was popular with investors that wanted to start getting into investing in startups. And I thought that was a really interesting piece of the puzzle. And I wanted to learn more. Clearly, everybody else wanted to learn more. And so I started building my network with angel investors in Asia, and in particular, connected with a guy named Titus, who was my co-founder of Fresco Capital, ultimately. Um, but first, I approached Titus because his classes were so popular. And I said, hey, Titus, you want to build a bigger program to train people in how to invest in startups? And he said, no, not really. <laughs> That's not very scalable. But I've been thinking about investing, starting a fund so that I can invest in more companies. Would you like to start the fund with me? And um, you know, that was my invitation into this crazy world and excited that I was able to, to parlay that into a career in the industry instead of just kind of one conversation. Got it. Interesting. You know, um, uh, you know, I've had guests who were, uh, you know, uh, analysts who moved into 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 VC role, but um, uh, but you were an operator who got into into the VC world. Um, how was your experience? You know, working General Assembly, and does does it really matter if you are an operator, or, or would you suggest people to you know uh, work in a intern in a, in a VC world? What, what is easier to easier to break into into venture capital? Part of the message that I want to get across in the book is that everybody has their own unique pathway. And I think it's important to recognize what are my unique strengths? Where is my network? What can I add to a company? Um, if I were to be an investor, how can I influence their their ultimate success? And that really comes back to what are your personal strengths? Who is your personal network? And so I do want to emphasize that no matter what your journey is or your background is, getting into venture requires being honest with yourself about what you're good at and how it can help other people. And then kind of doubling down on that network, that skill set. Um, you know, for me, I 
think being an operator was extremely helpful because I could see how our investors were impacting how we grew our business, how we thought about hiring people, how we made critical decisions around our business model. And that really motivated me to get into venture. And I think has given me a really helpful point of view because I do understand how things land for entrepreneurs. So from that perspective, I think being an operator is really helpful. Um, but I think there are also other ways to get into the industry if you have a financial background and that's something that you can add. I mean, founders need that too, right? So, but I think it's important to think about in venture, your customer is ultimately the founder and um, you need to be able to convince them why they should take your money and yeah. not anybody else's. And then you have to be able to influence the outcome of the business. That's why we invest in private equity and not public equities, right? Is because then we get to build alongside founders. And so just thinking about how you can help them and what your value add is for them is a critical piece of getting access to the investments in the first place. Got it. Interesting. You mentioned that, you know, the customers, uh, the, the founders of the customers, I think Fred Wilson recently came up with a post that the LPs are not the customers, but it's uh, the founders of the customers. But what would you say is, uh, are the keys to success in venture capital and what, what are like the KPIs for, 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 for a VC to, to, to show that, you know, they can, they can really deliver. This is one of the reasons why breaking into venture is so difficult and so confusing because KPIs, the true KPIs in venture capital are, do you return money to your investors? And that actually takes more than 10 years to, to prove out. And even sometimes after you do return money to your investors, then they'll ask, well, how do I know that you can do it again? So it's a very complex business. And those long-term true quantitative KPIs are elusive. I believe the key to success in venture is being able to demonstrate to yourself, to founders, and to limited partners as well, that you can do three things well, that you can access great investments. There are literally millions of businesses started every year, and only a couple of them become truly world-changing, wealth-creating entities that are worth billions, tens of billions, even hundreds of billions of dollars. And once they are on that pathway to success, it's often quite obvious which ones they are. But the question is, do you have access to them? So I think being able to demonstrate that you have access to great investments. Second, analyzing them. Can you analyze them effectively? Um, it's great if you see every single company in the world, but are you choosing the right ones? And this is a business of taking calculated risk. And so how do you do that well? And then third, can you add value? Um, you know, as venture investors, we are equity shareholders in the company. Often we own more equity than the founders themselves. And you have to be able to pull your weight. And in a way, like I said, I think being able to add value is what gives you the right to get access to great investments in the future. So it's those three things of being able to access great companies, analyze which ones to pursue, and then add value once you're part of them that I think are the keys to venture capital. And if you're able to do those things, those things well, then the KPIs will follow. You will make money um, for your investors and for yourself and everybody will be happy. Um, but you're able to measure, access, analyze, add value a lot faster and in real time um, than you are able to really control those longer term metrics. Very interesting. And uh, and the first point you you mentioned about access, you know. So how how do you how do you build a relevant network from from scratch? Uh, you know, some somebody who's really starting out. I mean, they would have 
um, they, they, you know, the college mates, but, uh, but you're working on a job in a nine to five job. How do you, how do you build that network from scratch? It's so funny. I share a, a story in the book about when I started at, uh, when we started Fresco Capital, I started meeting other investors and they kept saying, you know, where do you get your deal flow from? I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't even know how to answer that question. And venture capitalists get their deal flow from their networks. Um, we're all, we also raise capital from our networks. And so building that network um, and activating it properly for your goals is absolutely critical. So I always advise people, and there's some great exercises for this in the book, but start with the people that you already know. Everybody says, how do I build a network? Well, building a network from scratch is actually somewhat impossible. You have to start somewhere. And so make a list of what are your goals? What are you looking for? And who do you already know that has some sort of connection to that ecosystem? And then you have to figure out how to activate that network. And a big part of that is having a relevant, a succinct, a memorable, and an actionable personal narrative. So founders always think about their elevator pitch for their business. And that's great, but you need an elevator pitch for you as well. Why are people going to remember you? Why are they going to want to help you? What what can you do to help them? And those are the key components to being able to reconnect with people because a lot of times these people that you already know, they might know you for something else. They, you know, they're not sending you deals or introducing you to investors because you might've never told them that that's what you're looking for. And so I think that's a really big component of um, building your network, activating your network and getting what you need from your network. But it's a two-way street, right? I mean, I think uh, in venture you work with one of the reasons why it's so hard to break in is because people want to work with other people that they already know because they have a certain level of trust. They have a track record of this person follows through, they do what they say they're going to do. And so you really have to build that long-term relationship where you say, okay, Hey, I'm looking for this, but also how can I help you? And, um, you know, I think a lot of folks forget to do that. Mailman is a email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive, you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. The second thing you mentioned is about analyze, you know, so how, how do VCs evaluate companies uh, during the the, the due diligence process, you know, what are some of the metrics which uh, they should know, especially in pre-seed and seed, you know, it's so difficult to analyze. Right. So we have a diligence process and I share pretty concrete diligence checklist in the book. Um, I typically invest according to six different factors, which are um, the six T's. Actually, in the book, there's five T's, but I added a sixth one because I just can't stop. Um, but uh, you know, we'll evaluate a business based on the team, the traction, the technology, the TAM, the total addressable market, how big could this be, um, as well as the terms. And then finally, the timing. So there are a lot of ideas that are not necessarily new, but it's the timing that has come together that has allowed them to grow to a critical scale. Um, and there are a bunch of different forms of timing. There are things like demographic shifts or economic shocks or cultural zeitgeist. 
but there always needs to be a catalyst for adoption. And that's something to think about why now. So those are sort of the, the diligence checklist when we're evaluating a company in and of itself. But what I think is also really important for entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs to understand um, is that we don't just evaluate every company on its own merit. There's a question of how it fits into a broader fund strategy. And this is a hard truth to share. And most venture capitalists will never tell you that, hey, I'm sorry, I'm actually only have one investment left in this fund and it has to be of a certain profile and you're not it. That doesn't mean you don't have a great business, but it just means that for some reason, things aren't aligned. I think it's similar in the dating world, right? Like there's the Alanis Morissette song that you meet the man of your dreams and then you meet his beautiful wife. You know, there's the timing for when you connect. And so understanding what a venture capital business model looks like, how do how do VCs actually make money? And then where are they in that process? They won't tell you in a pitch meeting. It's up to you to figure this out. And so I think that's a really key element to keep in mind when you're raising from venture investors is they have investors as well, and they have a structure that they have to fit and incentives that they have to follow that might not have anything to do with necessarily the merits of your business itself. Mm, got it. Interesting. And uh, you, you meant something, something about TAM, you know, uh, I wanted to uh, understand more about TAM because, you know, when Uber started off, the, the TAM was small, but it, it just grew. And same the case with Salesforce, you know, uh, uh, I think the SaaS industry was, I think, not even a billion dollars. And now uh, I think Salesforce is it's a $20 billion company. How, how do you analyze TAM when, when you know, uh, you're trying to analyze a company? There are a bunch of different ways to analyze TAM. There's SOM, there's SAM, there's blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, your point actually ties back to timing, mm. which is that the best investments are the ones that truly create or pioneer new markets and new categories. But there has to be some sort of external catalyst for that to happen. And with Uber, the financial crisis was certainly a piece of that where a lot of drivers wanted to share their cars because they needed to earn extra money given it was a tough economy. Or for Salesforce, software started to really take off because the cost of um, using software and building software had dramatically decreased. And so there was this catalyst that created optimal timing for a new category. And that's really a lot of times what we're analyzing on the timing piece. It might not necessarily come out from the TAM piece. Um, but, you know, I think being able to sort of massage that narrative and share a way, a framework for thinking about that is really helpful when you're an entrepreneur because they will ask that question. And as a venture investor, we have to answer that question to our partnership, to our investment committee. And so how do we think about TAM growing over time? I think that's an absolutely valid way of, of framing your pitch, but it's important to get explicit about it because everybody's going to be doing that calculation. And so the more you can help them calculate in your favor, the better. Okay. Okay. Got it. Interesting. And, uh, and, and you also talked about adding value. You know, how, how does a VC add value other than you know uh, giving capital to the to the entrepreneur? Every VC has a different way of adding value, and I think it's important as an investor to be authentic about how you can add value, but also how you want to add value. Um, and so, for example, 
I share a story in the book about how given I had a financial background, you know, there are a lot of people that come from analyst roles and they're able to help with financial modeling. I have absolutely no interest in being able to do that. And I don't think it's, it's necessarily the best way for me to add value. Um, so that wasn't something that I doubled down on from a strategic perspective, but you also need to think about adding value in ways that scale. So um, what we do at Semperverance, we're an early stage fund focused on the future of work. We invest in healthcare, fintech, and workforce tech that's impacting the relationship between employers and employees. And what's unique about our platform is we have a large community of end buyers, B2B buyers for the companies that we're investing in. And so we run this community of employers. We have about 100 senior HR leaders, CHROs from publicly traded companies that we work with to understand how they're thinking about buying new software, what they're looking for when it comes to interacting with their employees from a healthcare perspective, you know, from benefits perspective how they pay them or how they find higher retained skill um, uh, and um, add value to their career pathways. That informs what kind of investments we make. And we're able to actually connect those folks with our portfolio companies as advisors, as potential customers, which helps accelerate their growth. So that's unique to our partnership and our team. We have this unique perspective on distribution and go-to-market. And so I think there are a million other ways that other venture investors, there are, there are venture investors that are, that have been founders and they've taken a company public. And so they're able to really help founders think through what does that process look like, put the frameworks in place early in order to be successful down the road, but it has to be authentic to you and it has to scale, um, in order to really build a sustainable way of creating that, you know, loop of accessing great investments, adding value, and that giving you the right to invest in other companies as well. Got it. And, and, uh, and, you know, for, for example, you know, if you have had a successful uh, investment, you know, how do you, how do you keep away from your own biases when you're choosing opportunities? Do you feel like if you had a successful investment, you, uh, you know, you feel like you want to double down on that market uh, and those sort of investments, but how do you, how do you keep away from such biases? It's a great question. And I think part of the art of venture capital is understanding how to constantly iterate and learn from your decision-making process. And I share a lot of stories in the book of investments that didn't go great and how I was able to improve my process as a result. But we are only human and we have biases. And the way that we can mitigate that is one, call them out. Um, to document your decision-making process so that when there is an ultimate outcome, you can revisit it. So I call this post-mortem, running a post-mortem. And anytime there's an investment that either goes to zero or there's a really successful um, model, you know, go back to that diligence checklist, go back to that investment memo and ask yourself, did this fail or succeed for reasons that I anticipated? Or was it for reasons that I didn't anticipate? And if it's something you didn't anticipate, then I think it's a really valuable data point in understanding your own bias or improving your process so that you do know how to look around the corner and think about those things. Because venture capital is not about getting every investment right. In fact, our business model is that potentially most of our investments will fail, but it's about optimizing for those really big opportunities. And so, you know, taking calculated risks is is a critical part of the process. And so looking back on those, um, and I think that's what makes it so hard to break into venture is people don't want to talk about the things that they failed at. 
And so it becomes really hard to learn from other people's mistakes, which is something that just, that's not the case in operating. People are always willing to say, oh, I didn't do this well, or this is what I would advise you to do differently or whatever. In venture, it's more about, no, I'm perfectly successful. All my investments are great. And that's how you get the right to invest in other companies. Nobody wants a bad investor on their cap table. Um, but that's kind of the name of the game. And, and it's hard to weed through um, sometimes. Correct. And, uh, you know, 2023 uh, is, is a difficult year, but um, for emerging uh, venture capitalists, who, you know, what's the strategy for, for raising a fund? Uh, uh, I think you, you started off with angel investing, but, uh, you know, should somebody start like an angel syndicate or, did, uh, or you know, join start a fund or what, what advice would you have for them? My main advice is find a way to build a track record. Um, so whether that's advising companies or you don't necessarily need capital to start building a track record for associating yourself with successful businesses. And part of what I talk about in the book is this concept in network science, which is called preferential attachment, which is this idea that success breeds success. And it's really powerful if you understand how to make it work to your advantage. It can be really challenging if you don't. Um, like I mentioned before, because it, it makes it seem like everyone in VC is super successful except for you. But the reality is that associating yourself with successful companies helps build a track record that makes other successful companies want to work with you. And so, yes, you can do that with very small checks. You could do that as an operator. You can go get a job at that company, um, or you can be an advisor, or you can join a venture fund that has invested in those kind of companies. Um, but how do you associate yourself with that success? Uh, is a really important first step for getting your foot in the door. Got it. And, um, like, you know, especially we, we have a lot of listeners who are founders of what one talk about, you know, uh, what should, you know, CEOs, uh, do, uh, uh, during, you know, the downturn, you know, what are some of the mistakes CEOs are making, uh, when it comes to the marketing budgets, a lot of, uh, CEOs are cutting down on the marketing budgets. What, what is your advice on that? The first advice I have is listen to your customer. And there's a very big difference between we thought we had product market fit and we don't. Mm. And we do have product market fit, but we just have to change how we're spending our capital because we need to make it last longer. So I think there's a level of honesty that venture investors and founders need to have together around what is changing in the market today um, for us. Because what is really interesting, if you look at previous downturns, is people continue to buy software. Yeah. People are still buying software. But there's a question of how much can you spend to get them to do that? Is it profitable for you? And how long do you need to make your bank account last in the current environment? But those are more business fundamentals. Those aren't market fundamentals. So I think start with the market and understand what are the changes and how is it affecting you? And then you can get smart about how to either raise more capital or make yours last longer or what that looks like. Um, and so I think there are a lot of cases because COVID was such a unique phenomenon, there are a lot of businesses that thought they had product market fit and they don't. And that's a, just such a different conversation around how to move forward. Um, so I would, I would start there for sure. Mm, got it. And you know, for, you know, for the founders who have not had the product market fit, what, what advice would, would you give to them on doing the layoffs? And, and do you think, you know, 
should they do the layoffs at one go or should they should they you know do it in tranches definitely in one go i think you'll get that answer from everybody mm. um but again i think the question is what is your goal as an entrepreneur and if your goal is to get to the point of product market fit then make sure that you're not cutting your team that you're still setting yourself up for success in order to reach that goal um because we have some companies in our portfolio that have cut deep and they're technically profitable but they have infinite runway but like to what end um and what's interesting is as a founder you know it sucks to sell your company for a suboptimal amount or to shut it down or return capital to investors but man, people want to back second-time founders. I will tell you that. And there is so much money out there for second-time founders. And being able to be... To act with integrity and honesty and transparency and following true feedback you're getting from the market, I think in the long run, that will benefit you so much more than trying to keep something going just because you feel like you have to. Today I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14-day free trial. If a founder is not able to raise funding uh, during these times, what sort of scenario planning would you advise for, for them to do? Definitely think about your burn rate um, and think about cash conservation and um, where it's going, right? Again, like what is your goal and how do you get there and what resources do you need to get there? And, um, and so I think just being really honest about that uh, is is really important in this market, but there are also a ton of great companies that you can just run profitably, mm. and you might not grow them three x year over year like venture investors want you to. But that doesn't mean that it's not a great business. So think about also you know ownership, and if you are able to break through, how much of your company have you already sold, um, and. Uh, if you haven't sold any of it, but you can run it profitably, hey, that might be a really, really great path forward. So um, I would just analyze what the ultimate outcome you're seeking is. And then what does that look like from a financial perspective for you? Got it. And you know, for, for founders who, who are trying to build the first boards, uh, you know, what, what do you think makes great boards? Uh, you know, and you know, what, what is that level of preparation that a board member needs to do? in order to run, you know, a great board meeting. Diversity is the most important thing you can have in a board meeting because founders often get very strong, confident advice from their venture investors. And you know what? Sometimes we don't know shit. We're just sharing what we've seen before, given our experience and our background. And so I think that means a mix of backgrounds, perspectives. It's great to have board members, some who understand the founder perspective because maybe they were a founder themselves or they understand marketing and how to resonate with consumers and handle messaging. Or you know, maybe you do have someone around the table that has been around for a really long time and, and can 
provide that perspective of downturns happen and this is how you navigate through them. Um, but I think recognize, and even as a founder, this is a lesson in the book for investors, but it, it's relevant for founders too. recognize your own bias. Where do you need to be called out and brought down to earth? And how can you surround yourself with people that will help you do that? I think that's really, really important. And of course there's, you know, non-negotiables of like, don't have an asshole on your board and um, you know, people that do their homework and show up deserved yeah. and deserve to be there. Um, only, only work with those kind of people. Got it. And, and has your role as a board member changed over, over the last couple of years since you, you know, started in venture capital? Definitely. I mean, I think with new experiences, I'm able to bring a new and different perspective. Um, when you're first starting out in venture, you don't get to be on a lot of boards because usually only a lead investor no. will take a board seat. Um, so being able to lead more rounds, be part of more board meetings, um, experience different personas in the boardroom and be more thoughtful about, well, who do you want to be generally? And then what role can you play in the context of a board that's productive for the company? Because I've definitely been, in board, been on boards where everybody's a cheerleader. And I think that can be great, but you do need someone being like, uh, hey, where's your revenue coming from and why isn't it coming faster? And there needs to be that alternative point of view. And I've also been on other boards where everybody else is asking those questions already. And I end up taking on a little bit more of the role of the cheerleader. So I think it's important to be aware of how the dynamics um, operate independent of you. And then you can figure out how to fit in if that makes sense. Got it. And, you know, I want to talk about your book, uh, Breaking on Adventure. Uh, you know, what what made you, you know, write the book and what was the entire process of writing a book with a, you know, full-time job? Yeah. Well, uh, definitely nights and weekends. And I ended up writing the whole book while I was pregnant. So oh. it actually worked out really well because I was not out networking drink at drinks or anything like that. Um, so it was a good thing to focus a lot of my energy on. Um I was motivated to write the book because as I navigated venture myself, I felt like there was a lack of real stories about how it works, real stories about the failures, real stories about the power dynamics. And I was able to make some connections with the GPs that I interviewed in the book, for example, where we were able to share those war stories with each other and we learned from each other and lifted each other up. And that is really the only reason I'm still a VC, to be honest, because I was met with a lot of, oh no, I'm crushing it. Um, aren't you? Or, you know, kind of thing. And I thought that was really unhelpful. And when people want to get into venture, you know, they buy venture deals by Brad Feld and, you know, maybe Secrets of Sand Hill Road by Scott Cooper. And that's awesome. Those are really helpful books. But as a young woman, I didn't feel like some of the lessons applied to me. And also I guarantee that no venture firm has ever hired someone because they can do venture math very well. Mm. It is, it is a, it's certainly table stakes, but that's not how you, there are so many other dynamics at play around how you even get the right to do that math. And you have to figure out how to play that game first. And that's really what I'm trying to share in the book is just, this is the system I don't love it. I think it needs to change, 
but we need to accept it as it is first, if we're going to be able to navigate it and then change it from within. And, you, you know, uh, you, you've had Mac Rawhill, you know, who, uh, who's the publisher, uh, what, what are some of the, you know, marketing strategies you've done to, to promote the book? Uh, you know, it said you, you need to spend, you know, equal amount of time promoting the book, but any strategies which you want to share with the listeners? Publishing is actually quite similar to venture capital, mm. which I learned and find really fascinating. McGraw Hill is an incredible publisher. I've been so lucky to work with them, but their business model is very similar to my business model as a VC, which is they publish a thousand books a year, maybe more, right. and right. they really only make money on a couple of them. Mm. And so how do you demonstrate early traction? How do you create that dynamic of preferential attachment? How can you show success? Because once you're able to show a little bit of success, they have a lot of resources to put behind you. So that's a lot of what I'm doing is try to get that initial sort of interest in the book. Um, and then I think being able to collaborate with a large platform is really powerful. So that's something that I'm thinking a lot about. But at the same time, this book is really meant to be educational and it's meant it's not meant to be a buzzy book. It's meant to be productive and helpful. And so I think part of the marketing strategy is just, gosh, get people to read it and hope that it's good enough that they'll talk about it and want to share it with other people. Mm, got you got to believe in your product, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Um, uh, I quickly want to do the top three. What's, what's your favorite business book? Breaking into Venture, obviously. Got it. We'll put down the show notes. Um, and uh, you know, if you could go back in time when you when you had your first job in in venture capital, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? I would have spent a lot less time trying to be someone that I'm not. I think I saw a lot of pictures of venture capitalists and I met venture capitalists. I thought, oh my gosh, they dress like that and they talk like that, and I need to try to do that. And I wasted a lot of time not <clears throat> doubling down on the unique pieces of my experience, my skill set, my network. And I would have done that sooner. I think I would have um I would have owned my difference earlier. Yeah, I love that. And uh, do, do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Definitely Zoom. This this job is so much different and more powerful and more open than ever before because we're able to connect in the way that we are over video. So, I mean, I spend almost, I, I guess Zoom and email are pretty much equal in terms of how much time I spend on them, but I don't think it would be possible to do this job without them. Uh, got, got it. We'll put that in show notes. And um, Alison, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about your book, uh, Breaking on Venture Capital? Check it out on Amazon. I'll share you with the link. Um, and then uh, they can find me on my website at alisonbombgates.com. Okay, awesome. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, Alison, thank you so much for taking time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.